Welcome to my podcast, Today's Dream, Tomorrow's Reality. My name is Vicki Poole, and I'm a master transformational coach and hypnotist specializing in habit change. And this podcast is sponsored by The Enlightened Peach. And this podcast is all about embracing our mosaic life. And some of you may ask, what is a mosaic life anyway? It is recognizing that all the pieces of our life, the good, the bad, the indifferent, have all come together to make us who we are. Change any one thing and we are different. With that in mind, I invite you to embrace your perceived imperfections and celebrate who you are. This podcast is unedited and raw, just like life. And I am your host. And today I have a special guest that I will introduce in just a moment. And I would love for you to leave a comment and remember to like, subscribe, and share. So now let's get started. So Sean, I would love to welcome you to my podcast. And just mm. for the guest, I would like to say we know each other from being in a, um, a joint venture group together where we're learning different things about business and so much more. And so that's how I know him. And I'll be honest, I know little bits and pieces of his story from us being in the same group, but I don't know a lot of it. And I purposely, I was just telling him, I purposely did not watch any podcast he's been on or anything because I wanted to open up that box and kind of discover things and uh, get surprised right along with all of you. So with that, um, welcome, Sean. Oh, no, thanks for having me, Vicki. This is awesome. Ah, perfect. So what I want to ask is if you would just tell just a little blip of what you do and how you came, because you have got such an amazing story from what I know, and I kind of want to dig in from there. So I'll let you start telling everybody who you are, and then I will just ask questions, and I will be honest, I'll probably interrupt you a few times, so just <laughs> bear with me. Okay, great, fantastic. Well, thank you for this opportunity. I will say that like uh, my big claim to fame, the one thing that always kind of sticks out in people's minds is that... Uh, when I turned 40 years old, like two days before I turned 40 years old, I was kind of reflecting on the fact that I was about to turn 40 and uh, and thinking about my life, which we often do when we have those landmark birthdays. And I realized that I had never taken not one step or one motion towards what a lifelong dream I'd had since I was a kid. Um, when I was a kid, I had always dreamt of having my own television show. But here I was about to turn 40. I had um, I had never done anything towards it. I've never I'd never been in community theater. I'd never been on an audition. I'd never taken an acting class. I had I I knew nothing about the television industry whatsoever. I was managing a newspaper in San Diego at the time, uh, the San Diego Reader, which was the fifth largest weekly newspaper. And I was their advertising sales manager. And uh, I had never done anything to go pursue my dreams in television. So two days later at my birthday party, I announced to my friends and family that I was going to have my own television show and it was going to be a worldwide hit. And my friends were just blown away. They're like, wow, that's amazing, Sean. They're like, which what channel is it going to be on? I'm like, oh, I, I don't know. And they're like, well, what's it going to be called? I'm like, oh, I don't know the name yet. And they're like, well, what's it about? I'm like, uh, I, I don't know yet. And they're like, what? What do you mean you don't know yet? They're like, wait a minute. Is this more like a dream, a wish? And uh, they all kind of started to laugh. 
Uh, and to my wife's credit, who had seen me reinvent myself multiple times and knew that I had like a little formula for doing it. She goes, you know, actually, she goes, if it's a TV show that you want, I know you're going to get it. And uh, nine months later, I had uh, created, sold, and I was starring on my own television show on True TV, which lasted for six seasons. It then began airing on the Discovery Channel worldwide in 127 countries, where it became a large hit in the UK. After it stopped airing in the United States, my wife and I moved to London, where I filmed it for a BBC-owned channel called Dave for another six seasons. So in total, I spent 12 seasons on television. Also created a, in addition to the British version, also created a, a British celebrity version where I had British celebrities come on my show and uh, had over 130 British celebrities come onto my television show uh, that I was the host of. And uh, I was, I, I lived my dream and it was incredible. And, um, and so now what I've done is I've created uh, this group called uh, uh, Do the Big Dream. And you can, it's I set up a little website. We can read more about it, but it's uh, do the big dream.com. And I decided that um, I want to try to teach my formula on how to go out and, and go achieve your gigantic that impossible dream, that thing that you're almost afraid to admit to yourself because it seems so crazy. You would seem like a lunatic if you told people you wanted to do it, but it's something you've always wanted to try to accomplish. And I want to teach people the formula that it takes to get there uh, and the skill set that it takes to do it. And, um, and, you know, I mean, look at me. I mean, admitting, saying that my birthday party, my 40th birthday party to all my friends and family, without even knowing how I was going to do it, just saying, hey, guys, I'm going to have my own TV show. And it's going to be a worldwide hit. I mean, that's crazy. And, yeah. um, and and people laugh for good reason, because when someone says something like that, you go, OK, you're having a midlife crisis. Yeah. <laughs> but I did it. And uh, and and I know that I can help other people, because um, one of the things, Vicky, is that after after I after I did that and some other things, I actually had some uh, opportunities to coach a few different people. And some people reached out to me, some friends and stuff. They're like, whoa, dude, can you teach me? How did you, you know? And so like there was a young man who um, I met him when he was a, a senior at university in San Diego. This guy walks into, I had a comedy club at the time and he walks in and asks if he can audition. I let him, he was not very good as a comedian. Matter of fact, he was really bad, but there was just something special about this young man. So I asked him to sit down at a table with me and I asked him questions about his life. And I go, tell me your story, dude. I go, what's going on with you? And he goes, well, I go, why do you speak the way you speak? He goes, he goes, uh, well, I moved to America when I was 13 from Hong Kong and I didn't speak a word of English. So I learned to speak English by watching uh, Yo MTV raps and rap sing. I go, I go, oh, that explains why you're Chinese, but you sound like you're a rapper. I go, this is awesome. I go, you talk about your real life on stage and I'll give you all the stage time you want. Eventually you could write a book about your life. Eventually you could move to LA, get on TV, movies, all that stuff. I'm happy to help you if you'll do that. And to this day, his name is Jimmy O. Yang. He's a big star. He, uh, he has two uh, comedy specials on Amazon. He's got uh, movies that he did, Crazy Rich Asians, and he's done like he's done about thirty movies now. He's been on the TV show Space Force, and it all started with him sitting down with me at the comedy club that day, and then me becoming his mentor. Well, he did a Google talk in front of the Google employees, like thousands of Google employees, and they and he wrote the book that I told him he was going to write. It's called How to American American uh, How to American an Immigrant's Guide to Disappointing Your Parents. 
So the, the interviewer says, hey, in your book, you mentioned the Godfather. Who's this Sean Kelly character? And he goes, oh, Sean. He goes, he's my mentor. He's the one that got me into the into show business. Well, from there, I started getting like inquiries from strangers going, hey, you helped Jimmy. Can you help me? Perfect. And I, I resisted for a long time. And then I realized, you know, there's no greater... There's no greater sense of um, giving back to the world and feeling good about yourself than to help others go and achieve what they think is impossible. Yeah, and so I that's agree. kind of what I'm doing, what I'm doing now. So anyway, yeah. Vicki, thank you for having me come on here and, and giving me this opportunity to share about my background, my story. My pleasure. Well, I want to go way back from there. I yeah. want to go back to... When you said that you were a young child and you knew that that was something that you wanted to do. So what was going on at that time in your life that had you even thinking about that? Yeah, you know, I, I can tell you, I, I can remember when it all happened. Um, I remember my parents were uh, separated and my mom was working full time and it was um it was probably I was probably about you know seven eight years old and um I would get left alone um at home all day long and the tv was my babysitter you know right. and uh and I remember watching the Andy Griffith show and I remember watching uh little uh what's, what was the little Opie. characters Opie. Opie and I would watch Opie and he he and I were similar age you know or at least uh, at least you know when I was watching it and, and he's on there right and I remember thinking oh I, I want to do what he's doing I want to be on TV you know and that's kind of when it first that's when it first like kind of got stuck in my head that I would love to do that and it but then you know I mean, how even I look, how do you ever do that? and then and after shortly after that two years later we moved to Germany and uh and so you know just you and your Germany, mom like, no my my parents got back together for a little okay. while we moved we moved to germany my father was a was an american um he was a life insurance salesman and he sold insurance to american gi station in germany my father my father read uh lots of hemingway and he had these fantasies of living in europe my father never attended university he had no real true real like he had no real career career, but he had kind of fallen into sales, was selling advertise, uh, selling um, uh, insurance. And he found out this little niche, how he could move to Germany and sell life insurance to GIs. And he thought, oh, this is my chance to move to Europe. So we went there on a 90-day tourist visa, and we stayed for nine years as oh, illegal wow. aliens. Yeah. We so what's your there. favorite memory of being there? I know you were young, but what's your favorite memory? Oh, my favorite memory of, well, so I lived there from the time that I was um, 11 or 10 until I was like 18. Okay. And so, yeah. So I pretty much, you know, I grew up there. My yeah. Some of my, my favorite memories was um, my father was extremely adventurous. And so we would we would live paycheck to paycheck. It was kind of like feast or famine. Mm -hmm. If he sold life insurance, we got a commission checks. And if he didn't, we, you know, sometimes we didn't know if like the electricity was going to get shut off or the water or whatever. But when he did have checks, what he would do is he would take my mom and I and get us in the car and he would say, okay, we're going to go on a road trip until the money runs out. And oh, wow. we would drive all over Europe and we would go to and stay in these bed and breakfasts. And, you know, in the U.S., a bed and breakfast is expensive. In, in like Germany or Austria or Switzerland, they call them Zimmerfrei, which just means free, like uh, available room. And so you literally are renting a room in someone's house and they feed you breakfast the next morning. And usually it's very inexpensive. So in those days, 
we could do it for 20 marks a night, which the exchange rate was uh, four marks to the dollar. So for five bucks, you could stay in someone's house. It was incredible, an nice. incredible. Yeah. Uh, so we <clears throat> we would get in the car and we would just travel around Europe. And my dad would pull me out of school. And sometimes those road trips would last for like a week or sometimes they would last for a month or a month and a half. It depended on how much money he'd made. And then when we ran out, we would go home and start all over again. And those were some of my best memories because my dad was always very fascinated about how things were made. So as a kid, uh, we would always go on like factory tours. We would go and see them, you know, blowing glass, making glasses or go where they're making dishes or go watch them making cars or, you know, across Europe, they have all these incredible factories. And then my dad was also fascinated by um, castles and museums and all of that or cathedrals. So we we did them all. We did all the cathedrals, all the castles. We did all of the going to all these little factories. And then my dad uh, was uh, really uh, curious about like how certain things are made, like like wine and beer and all this. So he arranged for me to have internships. When I was like 13, he got me an internship at a winery uh, on the oh Mosul River. Gosh where I ended up helping them. There was an early freeze and I helped them make an ice wine. He got me when I was 14, an internship at the Hindeger, uh Beer uh, Company in Frankfurt, Germany, where I learned to brew beer. So he was uh, always pushing like really adventurous, cool stuff. And uh, he was a real character. And as a result of that, I had one of the most unusual upbringings. Um, I also was responsible for helping the family make money. My dad wasn't allowed to go and solicit in the housing areas in Germany. So he would send me into the U.S. Army housing areas with lead cards and make me go knock on doors to get leads filled out for him to be able to sell life insurance. So actually, how did you feel when you were doing that? Oh, OK. Um, I will say this. OK, it was the most frightening, horrible thing ever. And it led to what I like to call my superpower. And yeah. I'll tell you what that is. Most Here's of what... our really big challenges that's what that does create is yeah, our superpower my superpower is i have zero and when i say zero i mean zero fear of rejection and that didn't start out like that but here my in germany german school gets out at one o'clock in the afternoon my dad would pick me up after school and we would drive 45 minutes into hanau where the army base was and uh, in the car on the ride, we would always listen to Zig Ziglar, the sales tapes. My dad had a whole <laughs> series of Zig Ziglar. So here I am, an 11-year-old kid listening to Zig Ziglar every day in the car, right? Perfect. We would get into Hanau. And I remember the very first day that my dad wanted me to go into the housing area. I was 11 years old. He drives me into the housing area, hands me a stack of lead cards, lets me out on the corner and says, I'll meet you right back here in two hours. See how many cards you can get filled out. And I was, I hated, he, here's the incentive he gave me. He said, for each card you fill, get filled out, I'll pay you a dollar. And then for anyone who, any of those leads that buy insurance from me, I'll pay you an additional $25 commission. When I was 11, I didn't care about the money. I was frightened. I wanted to be out playing with my friends. I didn't want to be doing this. It was horrible. So he drops me off. I walk into the housing area. I immediately did he tell you what to say when you got to the people's doors? The lead card was pretty self-explanatory. Okay. It said nine out of ten soldiers can get an immediate pay raise by filling this card out. Are you interested in money for college, retirement, investing, life insurance? And then if you filled it out, you got a free brass-plated social security card. 
with a little American flag on it. He would bring back those. He'd bring back the 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 brass uh, Social Security card when he came back to try to sell them insurance. So so basically, I would go there and say, "Hey, would you like to get a free brass plated Social Security card? And are you interested in any of these things?" And I would hand them the card, right, to read. Well, immediately doors being shut in my face, people saying, hey, there's no solicitation allowed. What are you doing here? Get out of my get out of the door, kid, blah, 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 blah. So I go back down where I'm supposed to meet my dad two hours later. I'll never forget this. Never. He looks my dad pulls up. He looks through the front windshield of the car and he sees me and I'm just sobbing, crying. Right. So he just has this disappointed look on his face. And he like waves me back into the car. And, and as soon as I get back in the car, I knew he wasn't happy because he called me by my middle name. So he would only use my middle name when he was upset. And he goes, what's the problem, Brandon? I go, I hate this. This is horrible. People screamed at me. They were yelling at me. They were shutting the door in my face. He's like, ah. So we left the housing area. Directly across the street was a U.S. Army base. We go onto the Army base. We go to the burger bar. He buys me a hamburger and a soda. And while we're sitting there, my dad says to me, he goes, hey, Sean. He goes, did I ever tell you about this casino where you can go and you can place a bet? And if you don't win the bet, you don't you don't lose any money. But if you win the bet, you win money. And I go, no, I go, Dad, that doesn't exist. He goes, no, no, it's a real place. I go, Dad, that doesn't exist. And he goes, no, 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 it's a real place. And even kids can go there. I go, no, now I know you're not telling the truth. I go, there's no casino that kids can go. He goes, son, I'm telling you, there's a casino you can go, you can place bets. And if you don't lose, you don't lose any money. But if you win, you win money and kids can go. I go, dad, that's crazy. I said, because if that were true, I go, everybody would go there all day long and just win money. He goes, yeah, you would think so. He goes, but he goes, but they don't. And I go, well, why don't they? He goes, well, because he goes, they're afraid. He's a, they're afraid they're going to, if they lose, they're going to, they're going to feel embarrassed. I go, well, why feel embarrassed? Just keep placing bets until you win. He goes, yeah, I guess that's, that's right. He goes, he goes, you think you might like to go to this casino sometime? So I said to him, I go, well, I go, yeah, sure. You know, I'm 11. I'm like, yeah, let's go to a casino. You know, he goes, well, would you like to go now? And I go, right, like right now? And he goes, yeah. And I go, okay. So we walk out, we get in the car, we drive off the army base and he drives me right back into the housing area. I go, whoa, whoa, what are we doing? He goes, I go, this is, I go, this isn't the casino. My dad goes, no, 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 son. He goes, this is the casino. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, every time you walk in there and you knock on a door, you're placing a bet that you're going to be able to get them to fill that card out. And if you win the bet, he goes, you get paid a dollar. And he goes, and if I sell them insurance, you get paid 25. He goes, but if they don't fill the card out, you don't lose any money. He goes, but here's the beautiful thing about this. The better you get at what you say, you get to increase your odds of winning the bet. I go, oh, interesting. He goes, yeah, so it's a casino. I go, oh, so it's a casino. I go, yeah. I go, all right. So I get out of the car, walk back into the housing area, start knocking on doors. Two hours later, meet my dad at that same corner. He pulls up. He looks through the front windshield. This time he sees me smiling ear to ear. He waves me into the car, I get in the car, and he says, he goes, so how did you do in the casino, son? And I go, well, dad, I go, I won 27 bets, and I handed him 27 lead cards I got filled out. He goes, wow, that's amazing. He goes, how did you do it? 
And I said, well, the very first one that I went to, uh, I just, I knocked on the door when the lady came out, I just said, hey, I go, everyone's gonna be getting these free brass plated social security cards. I assume you're gonna wanna get one as well. And all you got to do is fill this card out. Are you going to want to get one? She goes, of course I want to get one. So she filled the card out. Then I went to the neighbor and I said, Sharon just got one of these for free. And I'm pretty sure everyone in the building is going to get one. Would you like to get one too? Well, of course I want one. So that's how I got them all filled out. So years later, what I realized in my, that my dad my dad must have had to play this game in his mind in order to overcome the fear of rejection. Mm -hmm. But what I realized later was that my dad didn't fully understand how it all worked. And so I did some research and here's what I found out. I found out that the fear of rejection, the thing that holds most of us back from achieving the real accomplishments in life and really going after our big dreams and, and, and really going and, and really turning this life into something, finding your life's purpose and really doing something gigantic. Usually, is stopped because of the fear of rejection. And the thing is, is that the fear of rejection is a real thing. I mean, it's it turns out that, that the fear of rejection is hardwired into your brain in the same location where we physically feel pain. And the reason why is because through evolution, if you go way back, if you go way, way back to when we were living in little tribes, it turns out that if you did something stupid and the tribe kicked you out, you had a pretty good chance of getting eaten by an animal or killed by another tribe. So Mother Nature figured out like, hey, I got a hardwire this somewhere in this dumb dumb's brain so that they know to stay within their parameters and to not piss everybody off and get kicked out. So they build in this real healthy fear of rejection. But it also turns out that we have this reward system in our brain where our endorphins are released. And it turns out that as we learn something new, as we're going towards a goal, right? Everyone thinks that achieving the goals where the most endorphins are released, but it turns out once you achieve your goal, yes, you feel good and there's endorphins that are released, but it turns out that the journey on our way to the goal, as we're learning new things, that's when the endorphins are really released because we're set up in the reward system that we, that we enjoy learning, right? Because that's mm -hmm. part of our survival as well. So what I've done is I've moved my, the fear of rejection and I've moved it over to the part of my brain in the reward center. I don't view rejection anymore as, as, as um, I don't view it as like a rejection. The way I view this is I view these as learning opportunities. So every time I go out to do something, and if someone's saying no to me, I try to learn from that as to why, and then I incorporate that to go further. And so each time I feel good. So now I realize that one of my superpowers in life that's propelled me and allowed me to go do a bunch of crazy cool things in my lifetime has been removing the fear of rejection. And it all goes back to that experience when I was 11. And I feel like any of your listeners can take that and then it can use that same story because it really works and it's true that that if you can if you can stop viewing it as a as rejection and view it as a learning opportunity and view it as you placing a bet and that the better you get at placing those bets you're going to win and you do you wind up yeah, yeah. You, if you don't give up and you keep going back you're going to win Right. Well, you know, this is something that I talk to my clients about as a as a life coach and a and a hypnotist because I call it the critter brain. It is the part of your brain that is trying to keep you safe because it doesn't like change. It doesn't care if you are immersed in total mediocrity and you're miserable as hell, but mm. that's what it knows. And so mm. just like the 
fitting in and not pissing off the um, the caveman and being thrown out. You know, yeah. it's the same thing as when you're in this place of whatever it is that you swear up and down you want to get rid of or you want to change. Mm. You know, our critter brain just starts saying, well, I don't know. You know, that old saying, the devil, you know, better than the devil, you don't know. And right. it will do all kinds of things to convince you. So I tell my clients, I have never heard the casino thing. So that's a wonderful thing. I just tell yeah. them, let's pretend we're playing a game. And part yeah. of this game is let's see how we can make this work. And then we work out, you know, whatever the parameters are. But because a lot of times if I can help my clients reframe it, um, like yeah. you just did, just as it's a, it's a game that yeah. we're just trying to discover how we can bridge yeah. this gap and make this fun instead of feeling like it's life or death, that it just becomes a, an adventure instead of something we're being forced to do. And um, so it, it's just that that's just perfect. I, I love the um, the the amazing stuff that your dad taught you through that, oh, yeah. because, you know, not, a lot of people don't get that kind of um, feedback right away mm -hmm. of how to turn it around. So that's brilliant. Yeah. And I found, I also learned that like life some has this crazy way of preparing us for things that are up coming up around a corner that we can't see. Yeah. So for example, there's probably people that are listening to your, this podcast today and they're going to be able to learn some of these lessons and they don't necessarily know why they're learning these lessons right now, but then up around the corner, all of a sudden, they're going to know how to deal with something that they wouldn't have known how to deal with otherwise. And they can, they can use some of uh, the experiences you and I are speaking about as their, as their way of, of dealing with it. Mm -hmm. um, I learned that has happened throughout my entire life. Um, even though I had this incredible, unusual childhood growing up in Germany, my dad was this really interesting man. Um, my parents then once again broke up uh, when I was 16 and they actually each went their own separate ways with their individual. Uh, my dad had a new girlfriend, my mom had a boyfriend and they both left and I wound up getting abandoned in Germany at 16. Did you and speak I, German uh, at that point? Yeah, at that point I'd been in okay. German school since I was 10. So I spoke yeah. German. I got a job driving a forklift at night at 16 years old and, and I rented an apartment um, in this guy's attic. He had like a, one of these little attic apartments. I rented an apartment. I drove a forklift at night and I finished high school during the day living on my own at 16. So I feel like all, all those days of listening to Zig Ziglar and all his motivation and all the sales stuff, uh, it really gave me like a bunch of survival skills. And um, I had another really cool experience and, and I want to, and the reason why I bring it up is because you said a key word that I wrote down while you, when you said it, mm -hmm. which was reframing, like ref, because it's amazing how powerful it is to reframe things. You can have an immediate paradigm shift in your brain. Once you reframe it, you can go from not being able to accomplish something to being able to excel at something by just simply reframing how you think about it in your mind. And I had that experience when I was 15. Um, I was, I had always, I loved to ski. And because my dad was one of these guys who, um, who sometimes had money and sometimes we were broke, but he had no steady income. Um, 
I couldn't I couldn't actually afford to be on the local ski team in my town uh, because you had to be able to buy nice skis and aerodynamic suits and you had to pay for trips and all this stuff. But they had room on the ski uh, team for one person that was on the sponsorship, like a like a like you know the it was like a charity for one child. Right. And I I got that. And scholarship I got to be on the, kind of thing would be what we would call it here. Yeah. So I got to be on the scholarship, and so I um um. So I got to be on the scholarship. I got to go to the races. I got to ski. Uh, I love it. But I didn't. But all the other kids had like the coolest skis. They had aerodynamic suits. They got training camps. They got one-on-one coaching, special clinics. I Because I was on the scholarship, what I got was I had rental skis, rental boots, rental poles. I wore sweatpants and an oversized jacket. There was no aerodynamic anything. But I didn't care. I was so happy just to be on the ski team and to be able to go ski on the weekends that I had no, I had no sense that I was ever going to win anything, but I just, I just loved being there and doing it. Well, when I was 15, uh, my church youth group took a ski trip to Switzerland. That that sounds exotic, but it was only two hours from where I lived. So we went to, we went to Wengen, Switzerland. And while we were there, all the kids that were in my youth group didn't know how to ski. So they were off taking ski lessons. I was skiing by myself because by this point I was a good skier. So I remember I'm flying down this in Bingen, Switzerland. I'm flying down this black diamond. You know, I've got my head, I got my headset on. I'm listening, it's 1985. I'm listening to Van Halen. I'm just like going down this mountain like a bat out of hell. And at one point I remember passing somebody but I didn't pay attention. I get down to the bottom. And as I get down to the bottom, I'm leaning over my poles, trying to catch my breath. And I hear someone yelling, Hey, 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 you, Hey, Hey. And so I take my headphone off and I look around and this guy's going, Hey, Hey, you. And I go, yeah, there's something wrong. You talking to me? And he goes, Hey, are you American? And I go, I go, yeah, I'm American. He goes, Oh, wow. He goes, where are you from? And I go, well, I, I live in Germany. He goes, you live in Germany. I go, yeah. My dad sells life insurance. And he's like, what? He goes, well, that's a crazy story. And he goes, he goes, are you here for the, for the, the Laberhorn? And I go, the Laberhorn. I go, I don't even know what the I go, Laberhorn is. I go, I'm here with my church youth group. He goes, what? I go, yeah, I'm here with my youth group. He goes, oh, so you're not here to race in the Laberhorn? I go, oh no. He goes, well, you should race, man. And I go, oh, I, I do race. He goes, well, that makes sense. He goes, how many races have you won? I said, oh, I haven't won any races. I go, I got these rental skis and rental poles and boots and, you know, and he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. He goes, hey, stop. And I go, what? He goes, stop. And I go, what? He goes, just shut up. I go, I was like, take him back. Like, shut up. What? He goes, listen, kid. He goes, get on the, get on the chairlift with me. Because he asked me, he goes, how old was that? I go, well, I'm about to turn 15. He goes, he goes, get on the chairlift with me right up the mountain. I go, okay. So I get on the chairlift and the guest guy says to me, he goes, Hey, he goes, he goes, do you know who Billy the kid is? I go, the cowboy. He goes, no, man. He goes, let me ask you something. He goes, did you watch the winter Olympics in Sarajevo last winter? I go, yes, I did. An American finally won the downhill and got a gold medal. He goes, yeah, that's right. He goes, Bill Johnson. I go, yes, Bill Johnson. He goes, that's me. I'm Bill Johnson, Billy the kid. I go, oh. That's why you are. You're Bill. You're Bill Johnson. You're the, you won a gold medal. And he goes, yes. And he goes, and kid, I want you to know something. When I skied up to you, he goes, I wasn't skiing up to you to become friends. He goes, I don't need any more friends. He goes, I saw you flying down that mountain. And he goes, I thought I got to race this guy in the World Cup tomorrow. He goes, I wanted to get in your head. I go, really? He goes, yeah, man. He goes, you're that good. He goes, so here's what I want you to do. He goes, I want you to stop selling yourself on why you can't win. He goes, and I want 
want you to start selling yourself on all the reasons why you can't lose. He goes, here's the secret. He goes, what you sell yourself on and what you buy and what you believe is what you will project and sell to the world and what other people will buy about you. I go, wow. He goes, yes, let me say it one more time. What you buy and believe and sell to yourself, you will project to the world and they will believe about you. So if you tell yourself you have no nothing to lose and that you have everything to gain and that you have all the skills that it takes. And if you believe that with all your heart and you project that you're a winner, other people will believe it as well. Three months later in Garmisch, Germany, I won the two gold medals at the European uh, Junior Men's uh, um, Championships. I had never won a medal in my life. And after that, the coach on my team bought me brand new skis, got me a new aerodynamic suit. I got a sponsorship from Kodak. I was on a billboard. Like my whole, the whole thing in my brain changed. Mm -hmm. And, and then it was just a year later that I found myself living on my own. And it was um, that, that incredible experience at 15 and that one at 11, I think that helped me carry through and not go down a bad path at such a young age, but instead stay, stay focused and to go on to have a, an incredible life. And it was those two lessons that really, I think, like just grabbed me and helped propel me forward. Yeah, that, that sounds amazing. And, you know, it brings up something for, for me um, is that I had somebody was talking to me one time and it was about um, the polarity of life and things. So, yeah. you know, the if there's a um, an up, there's a down, you know, yes. and um, if there's a cold, there's a hot. So yeah. whatever you're experiencing, there's the polar opposite there. So if you're having mm. a catastrophe in your life, the polar opposite is an amazing life and you can just start focusing on the polarity of it because it exists there too. You just have to be able to envision it and become part of it. And yes. um, so I, the thing that is really cool to me about that too, it's like when you buy a, a car that you never see on the road ever and as soon as you buy that car, suddenly you see them everywhere yes. because you okay. can all of a sudden it's yep. in your line of vision. And, yes. you know, we get inundated with millions of bits of, of information all the time. And we yeah. only really see about two focus on about 2000 of them. And we yeah. can't even really comprehend all of those because we would go crazy if we noticed every single thing. And so yeah. it's the same kind of thing, you know, you you tell yourself that you're you're good at something and that you know enough and all these things that you can do then that becomes your the, the it's almost like you're going down that ski hill to that yep. that little place and um so i love this i love this because it's like you keep reminding me of things that <laughs> that i say or people have said to me it's yeah it's it's amazing stuff and you know, um, and I get caught up sometimes when somebody says to me, well, you know, oh, life's hard and they start, you know, saying all these things. And it's like you could just feel that just draining you when they even say it. And it's like, stop saying that because that's when it becomes true. Yeah, that's true. I okay. So, big two things that you said that uh, that I'd like to circle back to. Sure. One is uh, so that same thing with that car. 
I call that my, I call that the, my yellow bug analogy. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so here's the thing is that, so it's the same exact thing, but what I, what I believe is that once someone has, can really visualize the dream or the goal of where they want to go and they know what it is. See, the thing is, is that I believe that opportunities to take you to wherever you want to go in life are passing us by every day. And you just yeah. don't see it. You don't recognize them because you, you have no way of attaching value to those opportunities. But once you know where it is you want to go, and once you have a goal of where you want to arrive or a big giant dream, once that's clear in your mind and you can actually visualize it and see it, now all of a sudden those opportunities become into focus and you see them everywhere. And the key is to grab them and, and to run with them. So I use that the yellow bug analogy. It's in the same thing. It's like a person buys a brand new Volkswagen bug it's bright yellow you get out on the freeway and all of a sudden you go there's another yellow bug there's another there's there's another one there's another and those yellow bugs have been passing you on the freeway every single day you just never noticed them because they held no meaning to you there was no right. attachment now you own one so it's like once you own a dream then you will be able to see those those opportunities that are out there that are going to lead you to your dream. So I 100% agree with that. And I and I use that and I tell people that all the time. So that's powerful. And I use yeah. that in my own life. Then the other thing that I think that you touched on, which is um, some of my some of our most powerful lessons that we learn in life are actually learned in the in the hardest points of our life in, in through adversity. It is not when you're on top of the world. You're not learning those lessons when everything's going great and everything's just going your way and, and it's the it's the payoff. It's not in the peaks. It's down in those valleys. And in those valleys, some of the most incredible lessons are learned. And you can go back sometimes and you could think to yourself, why am I going through this? Why is it so tough? Why is this so horrible? But you get out the other side and you look back and you go, oh, I would have never been able to do this had I not managed to get through this and learned this lesson that got me here. So whenever those whenever those valleys are coming or whenever those adversities come into my life, I think, okay, this is it. This is this is a learning opportunity. And those endorphins start to kick in. So I'm not dealing with that, those down valleys in the same way that a lot of people, other people do, because I've conditioned myself to realize, no, that's when all the learning's happening. This this is going to be good. We're gonna there's going to be lots, and, I, and I'm always looking for the lessons of what I'm going through. Yeah, Sometimes they're not always obvious until you yeah. get through the other side. But you're right. It's it is again. It's mental reframing, which is yeah. powerful. Yeah, and I think it's Zig Ziglar that says, "Don't wish things were easier. Wish you were better." Oh, that's right. Yeah. Good yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and I love that. I love that. And, yeah. you know, and it's like I tell people all the time and a lot of times on podcasts because I'm talking to coaches and different people. And it's like that's what people hire us for is to be able to be the one up here looking down at your little map of what you've got going on. And we can see this. Um, this hurdle that you just hit, we can help you to redirect and move and and create new thought patterns around something that's going on to help yeah. you get to where you want to go. Because most of the time, well, I would say all the time, we can't figure out what we're going to do when we're in the situation. And mm. so sometimes it takes somebody standing out here that can kind of look it over 
almost like they're up above us and seeing all the stuff that's going on. And they can say, yeah, you know, if you go up here and you take a ride, man, in six months, you are going to be blown away with how different mm. your life's going to be. But yeah. that's, I think, what we do as as coaches and um, just to be able to give them a little bit of a push in the right direction instead of yeah. letting them kind of, you know, sit here and woes me kind of stuff. Yeah, I agree. I also believe that like um, if people are able to put themselves out there and take a risk and, and step into the unknown with just believing that like uh, just only holding on to the fact that like they're going to be okay if things are going to be okay, I don't know how this is going to turn out. I don't know how to get from A to, to B. I'm not quite, I don't know what that path looks like, but the right people are going to come into my life at the right time. And, and I'm going to, and if I'm meant to, to achieve this, if I'm meant to be there, it, it's going to happen, you know? Yeah. Um, I had this, I had this wonderful experience. I could tell you about it. Uh, it was when I was 19, I was in the army. I was stationed in, um, Fort Devens, Massachusetts, right outside of Boston. And I was going through a military intelligence training school there. And we had a long weekend and there was an older sergeant that was in my class. And he was an E6. I was an E3 at the time. Normally you don't talk to each other, but in class it's allowed, right? So he says to me, he goes, hey, uh, Private Kelly, he goes, are you going anywhere for the long weekend? I said, no, I, I don't have any plans. I don't have any friends or family here. And uh, he goes, do you want to play an entrepreneur game with me? And I go, um, I didn't even know what entrepreneur meant. <laughs> I was 19. <laughs> I go, um, I don't even know what you're asking me right now. He goes, well, he goes, it's kind of like a business game. He goes, what we'll do is you and I will leave the barracks on the, for the long weekend on Friday morning and we'll stay out. We won't come back until Monday night. We'll be gone Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. And we'll just leave with just our driver's license and the clothes we're wearing on our back. And we'll see how much money we can make. I go, whoa. I go, uh, how are we going to eat? He goes, yeah, now you're getting it. I go, no, 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 no. I go, let me ask something. I go, where are we going to sleep? He goes, yeah, now you're getting, it. I go, no, I don't, I don't think I am getting it. I go, I don't, I don't understand. But this guy was special forces and he had this crazy confidence and he wanted to get out of the army and become an entrepreneur. And so his enthusiasm was just so strong. And I, I thought, okay, all right what the hell? Let, I have nothing else going on. Let's do it. So that Friday morning we got out and we went dumpster diving. And that was our first idea because in Massachusetts, cans and bottles are worth 10 cents. So we went, we filled up trash bags, cans and bottles. We cashed those in. We took the money. We hired a guy in our unit who had a Volkswagen bug. He took us to more dumpsters. We found someone who'd thrown away a whole collection of CDs. Someone had thrown away a bunch of army uniforms. We found more cans, bottles. We took the army uniforms to the army Navy store, sold them. We took the, the CDs to the music store. We sold them. We took the cans and bottles. We cashed those in. We took that money. We bought a Polaroid camera, two train tickets. We went into Boston. We stood out front of the Cheers bar. This is 1989. Nobody had cell phones. Nobody had cameras. And we charged $5 for people to pose in front of the Cheers sign and to take their picture. And that was our first money maker. I would run down to the drugstore, I'd buy more, more film. And we stood out there until the bar closed at one in the morning. Then we went to a Dunkin' Donuts, bought a cup of coffee, asked the lady, we told her what we were doing, asked her if we could sleep in the booth. She goes, I don't care. Woke up the next morning, went through the classified ads. We found a way, we were looking for a way to reinvest the money. We found a guy who had a whole storage unit full of t-shirts that say, I heart Boston. And 
basically he was blowing them out for a dollar a piece, but he wanted you to buy the whole storage unit. So we took a cab over there. We bought as many as we could shove into the cab. The cab took us back by the cheers bar. There was a church. We put all the t-shirts into a bush in like bags inside the bushes. We stood out in front of that cheers bar all weekend long on the long weekend, selling t-shirts, taking pictures. And by the end of the weekend, uh, we had made $3,500 after paying for our meals, train tickets, buying the shirts, everything. Nice. $3,500, $1,750 a piece. And what that, what that taught me was several different lessons. One was I could lose everything. I made, I realized in my life, I could lose everything. But as long as I had my health, I could get out there and hustle and get my life restarted. But number two, it was like stepping into that unknown, that void. Like I had, we had no idea when I agreed to do that. We had no idea there would be a Polaroid camera. We had no idea we were going to go to the cheers bar. We, we, had, we just had to figure it out as we went along. And our back was against the wall because we needed to eat. We, you know what I mean? Like it, it was winter time in Massachusetts. It was cold. So we had to eat. We had to try to stay warm. We had to do all these things. And um, and so, yeah, it was, it was a really powerful lesson. So I look back at that one lesson of my life and it, it made me realize that uh, I'm like, wow, as long as, as long as I have my health, as long as you're willing to just get out there and step into the unknown, you can get creative and just figure it out. And, um, and it, that's, those, that's just that's just exciting stuff for me. And I, I recommend anyone that's an entrepreneur, anyone that's like that's that wants to uh, prove to themselves, they should go give it a try. Just take a weekend and just do it. Just walk out of your house with your driver's license and don't come back until Sunday night. Leave leave like on a, on a Saturday morning and say, I'm not coming back till, till Sunday night and I'm not taking any money with me. My I'm not taking my phone, nothing. I'm just going to go see how much money I can make starting from scratch. It's powerful. Yeah, it sounds like it. Well, let me ask you a question. You know, with all the stuff that you dealt with, with your dad being the feast and the famine mm. um, kind of thing, um, and with all these different little things that you went through, did you ever have that place where you had anxiety about the 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 famine part, afraid that your oh, feast yeah. part wasn't going to last long enough? Oh, yeah, I think it's I think it's one of the reasons why I was so driven to becoming uh, successful and uh, and wanting to get out and achieve a lot of things in life and to in and financially build up a, a blanket of security was because, yeah, of course, I mean, the the uh, the abandonment at such a young age, the um, when, so, okay, uh, so, well, let me let me stop you just a second. Um, mm. Just come to my to my mind the abandonment time that you had. So, yeah. did you have a relationship with your parents later? Yes, I did, and yeah. um, I I forgave both my parents for what happened. And the reason why was um, I realized life is short. Um, I did happen to go to Iraq and and fight in combat and had some close calls and realized I'm living on borrowed time. And so I thought it really puts into perspective, like what is and isn't important. Mm -hmm. My parents, um, I don't think that they were trying to be malicious at the time. I think my parents thought, you know, he's going to be fine. They were just kind of doing their thing. Um, I did forgive them and I did establish a relationship with them. I'm so glad that I did because I lost my father in 2014. And so 
I'm glad that we were able to be reestablished and become friends and, and still do lots of things together. And uh, the same with my, my mother, who's still alive. Um, so, you know, and as you get older, you realize people make decisions and, you know, we're, you know, you, you think that your parents are these wonderful, you think these, your parents are adults who have it all figured out. They don't have it figured out. They're just kind of going through this thing called life as well, making their own mistakes. Um, I, here's the thing. Um, when I was a kid, when we had the, the famine part, which you was feast or famine, either my dad got a lot of commission checks and life was great. And we were doing road trips or, the famine part was our water would get shut off, our electricity would get shut off, our telephone would get shut off, our landlord would give us eviction notices, the uh, the bank would, you know, talk about taking the car back, you know, all these different things. So in Germany, um, you can't just like pick up the phone and get your and get your electricity turned back on. They, if you had your electricity turned off because you didn't pay your bill, you had to physically go to the electric department and go in and explain yourself and get a lecture and then pay a, a bigger deposit to get it turned back on. Well, so we would have to go to the electric company, the phone company, we have to do all these things. And when I was 11, 12, 13, 14 years old, and uh, my parents didn't speak a word of German. I was the one that spoke German. I was the mm. one that had gone to German school and spoke German. So I was the one that got all of these lectures about being irresponsible and how horrible it was. Now, it was meant for my father, but I would translate what they would say. And my dad's response would be like, he would just blow them off. He would say crazy stuff like, mm, you tell him we won the war, stuff like that. I mean, it was crazy, you know? <laughs> and so like he had no, my, it, it didn't, it never seeped into my dad's brain, but it, but it did me. Like I heard all of these lectures to this day, I've got an incredible credit score. Like, you know, like pretty close to 850, you know, like 840, you know, where one almost maxed out because I would never think of not paying a bill on time. I would not think of ever having my electricity or my water or utilities. I wouldn't, that would just never enter my mind because I got lectured so much as a kid. So again, here was this horrible experience being lectured by adults, by something that I didn't even do or was responsible for. But later in life, those became extremely valuable lessons for me. And just like it just like the same way Zig Ziglar got into my brain, all those lectures about how 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 irresponsible it is to not pay your bills seeped in as well. And I, I and I got a lot of benefit from it. But it was it was traumatic at the time. Yeah, yeah, I would think so. Well, I know you were in the middle of a thought before I uh, interrupted you. Do you remember what it was? Uh, no, but that's nope. okay. We're having a great conversation here. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, so I kind of want to go and um, um, let's go back up. You had said you, one of the things you did tell me was that you had a very good business. And then when the world shut down and COVID happened, you were mm. just all of a sudden you were thrown into that famine type of experience. So can you just yes. share a little bit about that? Now that part that part was actually um, traumatic, even though I've got a positive outlook on everything, because I think it was I think the pandemic was um, brutal for a lot of people. I noticed that there was feast or famine during the pandemic. There was either people who they were in a field that just took off, like if you worked in tech or if you worked in real estate or if you uh, you know cert there's certain sectors where they had never made so much money in their life. It just yeah. like it was like this rush. And then there were people like myself who lost everything. Um, I, um, my wife and I 
it had been our 30th wedding anniversary that was coming up. And so we had planned a four month trip around the world, starting in London. And we were going to work our way all the way around the world to, to Tokyo. And it just so happened that that was the fall of 2019. And we happened to be in Hong Kong watching TV as they, as the leak first, or as the thing started to first appear in, in Wuhan, they were showing on the news in, in, um, in Hong Kong that they, in Wuhan, they were taking trucks full of dirt and they were covering the ring road so no one could leave the city by car. They were shutting down the train stations, but they were still allowing international flights to leave Wuhan to Europe and the U.S. So my wife and I looked at each other and we're like, this is crazy. Like, you know, whatever this is, it's crazy. Like the fact that they're putting dirt so no one can leave the city. But the fact that they're allowing international flights to leave, we're like, what is that? Like, that doesn't make any sense at all. We're like, well, I don't, we, we didn't know what was about to happen, but we knew it wasn't good. And we knew long before everybody else. We knew like in early January. And so, um, so we ended up getting to Tokyo a couple of weeks later and we were supposed to spend another month traveling around Japan. We bought your rail or um, Japan rail passes, but we looked at each other and I, and I told my wife, I said, you know what? I have a feeling I'm going to lose my business over this and we might have to sell the house. I go, we should just go home right now and get prepared for that. She goes, yeah, I agree. So we got on an early flight a month early, flew back to California, went to our house. Uh, I tried to call friends and family to tell and warn them, but immediately I was met with people going, hey, are you okay? We're going to pray for you. Like they thought I was crazy because I'm like, hey, this is coming. It's going to destroy everything. Go get groceries, go buy masks. And my cousins and stuff, they're like, they're like, we're going to pray for you. Are you all right? You know? Yeah. So I realized so you were well, one of those alarmists everybody talked about. <laughs> yeah. So I, so then basically I realized, Oh, I, I, I can't tell people cause they're just going to think I'm crazy. I can only take care of us. So we went, we got the groceries, we got the masks, we got prepared and we put our house on the market because I anticipated that I was probably going to lose all my business. Cause what I was doing at the time and which I still do is raise money for nonprofits as an auctioneer. I do the big galas for children's hospitals and for, for um, all kinds of private schools and nonprofits. I've raised over $500 million as a, as a gala auctioneer, you know, these big functions where 800,000 people will come and I'm on stage auctioning off elaborate travel packages or just getting people to give pure donations by raising their hand and committing at different levels. So sure enough, March rolled around of 2020 and within 72 hours, all 32 of my galas that year all canceled within three days. And it was not surprising, but also surprising. Like I yeah. had- you wanted, you wanted it to happen like, we're so wrong. This is not coming. Yes. You know, we're, yes. we're, it's, you know, that's, it, it's, let's, let's take the effort and we're going to do all this and yes. pray that it doesn't happen. Exactly. And I was thinking that maybe by being as proactive as I was and thinking worst case scenario, that the worst case scenario wouldn't happen, yeah. but uh, it did happen. And so we ended up selling our home uh, because, you know, you know, besides a mortgage and besides like, you know, California property taxes, which were outrageous, you know, I think it was $8,500 a year for my property tax. I was in a fire zone. So $8,500 a year for fire insurance. So that's 17 grand a year just to wake up each morning, just to open wow. your eyes and then mortgages and bills and stuff. So we thought, okay, we got to do this. So we sold our home and we, and we got out of uh, California and we took the equity. And when it came to Arizona and paid cash for a house so that we could like, uh, um, you know, not have, you know, the, you know, 
to not have anything on our shoulders, you know, and to just kind of eliminate all those expenses. And because we didn't know how long it was going to last. And it ended up lasting longer than I thought it was going to last. And um, to be honest with you, uh, here we are 2024. And I think I have about four, only 14 auctions lined up for this year. So here I am 40 years later, and I'm not even halfway back to where I was that I had lined up originally for 2020. Um, so, but, you know, that that's life. Life will throw you these, these curveballs, but also... Had, had the charity auction business continued the way it was continuing, and I had my TV show had just ended a couple of years before that. Had had either one of those two things happened, where I was maybe another season of the TV show, or had I just continued to grow the charity auction business, I wouldn't have stopped and looked around, and and I'm, and I'm so glad that I did because it it forced a, a serious pause button to be hit in my life. And it made me realize, wow, okay, I've been helping a lot of these nonprofits raise incredible amounts of money, which is very rewarding. And I love it. And I'll probably do this for the rest of my life. But at the same time, I could probably help a lot of people achieve a big, gigantic dream or a goal by showing them how I did it. And um, so the financial rewards aren't going to be the same. But I'll tell you, it feels incredible when I, I'm collecting these stories of friends that I, I've helped, you know, I shared the one about Jimmy Oyang and he's gone on to become a big movie star. I have a few other friends that I've kind of walked through this process and helped them just change their lives. And even though I don't see a big financial reward or any financial reward from it, uh, I, I get like, my heart is full, you yeah. know? Yeah. 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 I will say when you, um, when you help somebody, you know, you, 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 you deserve some financial gain from it, but the sure. thing that feels the most amazing is the satisfaction of knowing that you have done something that is going to ripple out into the world. So That's by right. changing that one person's life, they in turn have created a ripple effect of their own that you started. And yeah. so it just becomes like, and, you know, and I'll be honest, one of the things I've always said was that I did not want to leave this earth without having made a big enough difference because yes. I selfishly wanted to be remembered. And so a lot of times I thought, well, if I if I die tomorrow, will anybody remember me now? Mm. You know, and so then it kind of puts that in you a little bit more. Well, maybe not. So. Who do I have to help? How do I need to show up so that I will be remembered in a good mm -hmm. way? You know, mm -hmm. um, and my sister reminded me of that one time. She said, you know, there's people that get murdered all the time and people remember them because it was horrific. I said, OK, I'll just change the way I say it now. <laughs> it's I want it to happen in a good way. Um, so but it is it's amazing um, as you're telling these stories that mm. you know and how good it feels and i can see it in your face and the energy mm. that you exude from it it's got to just feel so electrifying kind of with how that just surges through you the satisfaction and pleasure of being able to do that yeah it does i'll tell you a, a valuable lesson that i learned as a fundraising auctioneer um early on I used to think, wow, I'm 
I'm really good at this, you know, and I would give myself a lot of credit and pat myself on the back for it. And the truth of the matter is I worked very hard to learn techniques and how to become really good at it. And one of my one of the things that I help nonprofits do is if they get stuck at a plateau, um, let's say that they their gala has been raising five hundred thousand dollars for like the last six years. I'll come in and blast them through and get them to the next level. Like I took credit union for kids in Southern California. They've been stuck at around 500,000 for like eight or nine years and they raised money for children's hospitals. So I came in and I took them to 1.5 million. I had the skills to do that. And I used to pat myself on the back and go, wow, look at how good I am. But then I, then I realized at one point, and this is when I got really good is when I realized that like, uh, I'm a conduit. I'm a vessel. And I'm, it's not me. It's not necessarily me doing this. It's me being on stage. And you have a room full of people who have it in their heart to want to help this incredible cause. They need to be motivated to that next level to give much more money than they've ever given. They need to feel like they're a part of a miracle. And they need to, they need to, um, they need to like stretch or get caught up in the moment and 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 commit themselves much bigger than they've ever committed before. And I realize that I I now before I go on stage, I I close my eyes, I envision an incredibly successful night, and I also say a small prayer and I just say, okay, if this organization is meant to have this money use me let's do this let's let me be the the conduit let me be the vessel that it, that this gets channeled through and i get to i get to i get to and when you are that vessel and that conduit you get to feel the buzz and the excitement and the and how awesome it is but at the end of the day you have to realize that like um you've been given the opportunity to be placed in this position but it's it's not don't ever think that it's just all you. It's, right. uh, you know, there's a much bigger power uh, force that behind all of this. And you, you are so lucky that you get to play a part of it. And so I've come to the realize that, that I, I get to play this incredible role and I get to have this incredible experience. And I don't know how much longer it gets to last, but every time I do it, I'm aware of the fact that now this isn't just me, it's me plus the almighty, you know, just like yeah, I get to be there and be a part of this whole thing. And I witness miracles happen all the time when I do these charity auctions. Like I I'll, I'll have like an organization that's like really short on their funding and they're doing some incredible work with it. And they don't know where the money's going to come from. And then magically that night, it just comes out of the room where there's someone who steps up and gives an incredible, and then they'll come to me afterwards and they'll go, I didn't even plan on doing that, but you, there's something that just, be, you know, you got me and I'm thinking I didn't get you, but the, whatever that power was, got you, yeah, and, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, it's cool. It's really cool. Yeah. Well, the, one of the, the prayer that I say every morning before I start my day, it's yeah. that 
Um, God, I'm here to honor you and just put me in front of whoever I need to serve in whatever capacity that is. Mm. Because sometimes you don't know. And sometimes it's the simplest thing is like going to the grocery store and speaking to the cashier, using their name and smiling. And you've just yeah. done something for them, you know. Um, and uh, it makes me think of, I don't know if you remember this. This is a Zig Ziglar thing, too. I believe it's Zig Ziglar that does it. Who's kicking the cat? Do you remember that? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Because you, you remind me? Yeah, well, I, my version of it, because I never can quite quote him directly, it's mm. that um, this guy has been having a horrible, horrible day. He had a fight with his wife. You know, his his kids weren't doing the thing. Yes. He got caught in traffic. All these things yes. happen and he gets to work and he just it just goes down the line. So he gets yes. screams and yells at the guy under him who in turn goes and screams at all the people that he's working with. And then he goes home, The those one of those guys goes home and screams and yells at his wife. His wife yells at the kid and the kid walks outside and kicks the cat. So yes. he says that first guy, if he just went to their house and kicked the cat, it would have eliminated all the stuff. Um, That's right. And I love that because That's, it is yes. the way things happen. You can create a ripple effect that's amazing or you can go kick the cat you know either yes. one yeah I, I i love zig ziglar can you tell i do too that <laughs> that's actually from his uh his series called uh see you at the top yes it and, is uh, it is <laughs> yeah that's that's a good one i love yeah. that one. yeah that's I do too. yeah and so um yeah you know there's there's so much power in like um you know, when you tell that, that those, those stories, like from Zig Ziglar's stories or, you know, all these different motivational speakers or sales trainers or whatever, there's, um, there's, there's so many wonderful lessons and you hear these stories and then it sticks in your head. Right. And, yeah. and you can laugh about it. And I enjoy always, that's one of the reasons I think I always enjoyed Zig Ziglar's because, uh, he was so funny as well, yeah. even though he yeah. came across like a Southern Baptist preacher, uh, he also had such a great sense of humor and um, humor is something that's always resonated with me as well, because um, I had I had fallen in love with stand up comedy as a kid. I saw Robin Williams on TV doing some stand up or something. And I just thought, oh, my goodness, look at this. This would be this is awesome. So later in life, I became a stand up comedian. I did stand up comedy for 20 years. And um, oddly enough, full circle, crazy story. Robin Williams manager, Larry Bresnu, who discovered Larry and or who discovered uh, Robin Williams and managed Robin his entire career. Larry Bresnu managed Robin Williams, um, Billy Crystal, Steve Martin, Martin Short and Bette Midler. Those were his five clients. Oh, and I love Randomly, all five of those. <laughs> yeah, me too. And randomly, <laughs> I sat next to Larry Bresnu on a plane one day flying to, from L.A. to New York. I see him reading a movie script. I take my headphones off and I go, what do you do for a living? He goes, uh, he goes, I produce movies and I, I manage comedians. I go, oh, I go, um, I go, I'm a stand-up comic. I go, who are some of your, some of your clients? Or no, I go, I'm a stand-up comic. And he goes, he goes, oh, really? What's your name? I go, Sean Kelly. He goes, I've never heard of you. And I said, oh, okay. Well, who are your clients? And he goes, Robin Williams, Billy Crystal, Steve Martin, Martin Short, Batman. And I go, oh, yeah, okay. Well, I've heard of them. And he laughs. And uh, I go, well, it was nice meeting you, Larry. He goes back to reading his movie script. I put my headphones on and I think to myself, what am I doing? Like, I got one of the biggest managers in the world sitting right next to me for five hours 
this flight to New York. So I take my headphones off and I go, hey, Larry, I go, can I just ask you one question? He goes, okay, Sean, what's that? I go, can I just tell you actually what I've managed to do with no agent, no manager, no contacts? And can I get some advice? He goes, okay, what have you managed to do? I said, well, I go, I created my own television show. It's on True TV. It's called Storage Hunters. I'm, I'm the creator of it. I'm the host of the television show. I just got an offer to move to the UK to make a British version of that same show. I created a television show for National Geographic called Church Rescue, where we go in and we fix up churches and we help save churches. And uh, and uh, and I go and I do stand up comedy. And he goes, wait a second. He goes, you don't have an agent or a manager? I go, nope. And he goes, you did all of that by yourself? And I go, yep. And he goes, okay, yes, we do have things to talk about. So anyway, by the time we get to New York, Larry has agreed to become my manager. Nice. But not as a comedian, but as a but as a television producer, <laughs> as a okay. non-scripted television producer. So I got to work with Larry all the way up until he passed away from cancer. And it was it was incredible. Like uh, the the stories I learned, the lessons I learned, the hundreds of lunches that we went together and the things he shared with me and the things he shared with me about, about Billy's career and about Robin's careers and the ups and the downs and just seeing how he ran his business and what he did for his clients was just, it was just amazing. And I got that opportunity just because I took my headphones off and I said, Hey, what do you do for a living? You know? Yeah. And I started one open-ended question and that led to one of the greatest experiences of my life and when Larry passed from cancer of course I was devastated because by that point he'd become almost like a within the three years we were together he'd become like a father figure it was amazing it's like that you know that mm -hmm. thing that I had missed when I when I turned 16 um, and there he was and he, he, the lessons he imparted were incredible so I always say to people uh, take a risk and yeah, and, ask, yeah. and start a conversation with people and ask an open-ended question and then just listen to what they have to say. Well, it's it's kind of like, you know, one thing I say is there are no accidents. So the fact that he sat, was sitting next to you was not an mm -hmm. accident, but mm -hmm. it's almost like, you know, the story of the cars, you know, if you're not open to the possibilities, you would not have even noticed what he was reading you mm -hmm. would definitely have not gotten out of your own head of listening to your whatever you were listening to and mm -hmm. being focused on whatever you were doing. But the fact that you're open to things like that and you're, you're you know, almost welcoming new experiences in for this game of life, yes. then that's when those things show up. Yeah, you're right. And I think also going way back to that thing, talking about like my superpower is not having any fear of rejection. I think a lot of people might be afraid to enter into a conversation with someone like that with a stranger and go, hey, what do you do for a living? And then just keep going and going. But like, um, you know, if you can, if you can get that under control and you can eliminate that fear of rejection and you can learn to start open-ended conversations where you ask open-ended questions that gets the other person talking and then you carefully listen, uh, the lessons are can be incredible. Not always, but they yeah, can be. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things I help with hypnosis, I will say. Um, yeah. But one of the things that comes to mind as you're saying that is, you know, I think a lot of times people get so anxious about having a conversation with someone they don't know because all they're thinking about is themselves. You know, what is somebody going to be, what are they going to think? Because I said something, what are, you know, what, what, what? 
Um, but if we kind of, if we can get into a place where we take the focus off of us and mm. we think, you know, everybody wants to tell their story, you know, mm. everybody, if you genuinely are interested. Mm. And so it's just pretend you're sitting like you and I are sitting here right now talking. And I said, before we started, I said, let's just pretend we're sitting on my sofa and we're having a cup of coffee and we're talking. Yep. And I think if we can look at interactions with people wherever we go in that same vein of we're just having a conversation. There's no commitment here. There's no um, angst about whether they listen or they talk or they don't. It's just have a conversation. And I think if we can manage to take it into that place, then it takes a lot of that stress and anxiety over you know, what's going on, because let's, let's face it, you can have a conversation with one of your friends sometimes, and mm. you love each other, and they may not be open to talking at the time. But do you get upset and say, well, I'm not going to ever talk to anybody again? No, mm. you know, you say, well, they're having a bad day. It's okay. And so the same thing happens out in the world. Yeah, I, I agree. That's awesome. That's and you're right, people, people want no matter who they are, people want to share their story. And they and really people are, um, they they have a sincere need to be heard and to be understood and to and to to feel like other people get them so that they don't feel like they're alone on this journey and like this was my experience and then they find out wow there's these other things in common. The other thing too that I found is that um, some of the most interesting conversations I've had with some people is when I met people who were famous but not famous to me like I didn't know who they were. And I just had like a natural conversation with them and they were so excited to learn that I didn't know who they were and they could just, they could just have a, like Be a themselves. Normal... Yeah. yeah. This has happened a couple of times in my life. Uh, once I was at the Biltmore hotel in Scottsdale, Arizona, and um, uh, there was this guy sitting on a bench and I went and sat down next to him. I said, Hey, how are you doing? And we just start talking a little bit. And then, um, we just had this nice conversation about travel because I've been to 93 countries. He he has traveled, but he really wanted to do more traveling. But he told me that his job kind of prevented him from doing the kind of travel that he wanted, which was international travel. But he did a lot of domestic travel for work and everything. And we talked for like an hour and a half. And then finally, I just said, I go, well, what is it that you do? And he goes, he goes you really don't know who I am, do you? And I go, no, I don't. Turns out he was the like the head coach of the New York Jets of a football <laughs> team, but I'm not a sports fan, so I had yeah. no idea who he was. And uh, he was just telling me what a pleasure it was to just have a normal conversation, you know. And I learned a lot of fascinating things about his life. And probably had I known who he was or been a fan, he would not have opened up. Yeah. Another time I was doing a charity auction in San Diego and I went to introduce this guy. And I, again, I didn't know who he was. He was a sports guy and I mispronounced his name, which is a big mistake. You should always learn how to pronounce someone's name before you go on stage. But his name was Ladanian Tomlinson. And he's like, he was like, I think he's like a quarterback for the San Diego Chargers. But I didn't know any of that because I'm not a sports fan. And I, I called him Ladanian Tomlinson or something like that. And the whole room booed me. There were like 800 fans just booed because they were like, it was this thing where sports people were serving lunch to the donors, you know, yeah. and they would grab a baseball or a football, depending on what they did. So this guy says to me afterwards, he goes, Hey man, he goes, 
do you really not know who I am? And I go, no, man. I go, I don't watch sports. I go, I'm so sorry. I don't know who you are. He goes, oh, that's awesome. He goes, we should be friends. And then, uh, about a couple months later, I'm in Mission Valley in San Diego. And I walk into a CVS drugstore and this guy says, he goes, hey, Sean. He goes, Sean, what's up? And I, I look at him. I go, huh? And he goes, dude. He goes, Ladanian. I go, oh, the football player. He goes, yeah, the football player, man. He goes, how are you, dude? And so it's kind of nice. People, it doesn't matter how famous they are. It doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't matter if it's just the clerk that works at the grocery store. It doesn't matter where they're at in their life. People just want to be heard and they want they want to feel like they can have a connection. Yeah. And sometimes that connection can be with people that um, you know, that you have that you would think you would have nothing in common with. Like you would think that I would have nothing in common with these sports guys because I don't like sports and I don't watch sports. But it, truth of the matter is we could talk about all these other topics that they're interested in talking about that no one else wants to talk to them about. Right, right. Well, one of the things for sure, if you can become a good listener, you can be the best conversationalist that ever came about. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You know, um, one of the things that I teach, because, uh, you know, I, I teach these three pillar skills, and, and one of them is how, how to overcome the fear of rejection. One is how to get a sincere, really sincere self-confidence. But the other thing is sales, because I really believe that you're not going to accomplish all the things you really want to accomplish in life, unless you know how to sell, you need to know how to sell your dream to others. You need to know how to persuade others to come along with you on your vision. And, um, and that's a big part of selling that people don't realize is that people always think that, that selling is about you learning to be able to say things in a way that are, are very persuasive. The truth of the matter is that selling is actually you only doing about 10% of the speaking, uh, selling is really about asking the correct open-ended questions and then becoming the best listener ever. I call it active listening, where you yeah. basically grab a pen and a paper. When the other person's speaking, you are jotting down notes and you're just focused on what they're saying. I learned that skill when I worked for military intelligence. We used to listen into the East Germans and we would we would intercept their communications and then we would have to transcribe by hand what they were saying in shorthand. So you really had to focus in on key words and what was going on. And I use that later in my sales and it's extremely powerful, which is, you know, let let that other person speak, ask them the open-ended questions and then just learn and figure out what it is that they want and what they need and what and and they and let them kind of discover that on their own and then figure out how can I be of best service to this person and meet those needs and not and don't say anything until you've got it figured out in your mind. So just keep asking questions till you go, wait a minute, I think I can help them with this. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Perfect advice for everybody that's watching or listening. And um, we have kind of gone over our time, but I'm oh, good yeah, with that. That's okay. No, no worries. This has been this has been great. So I want to ask you um, to just remind everybody how to um, get involved with your group and um, different things. And I will share with everybody that when I put this up, um, and I will have in the description, I will have any links that you want in there. But okay. if you could tell them now, so if they're listening, they can write it down in there if they're not where the link is. Yeah, listen, if you so if you are interested in trying to go out and accomplish a big dream in your life, if you're interested in like going out and chasing that gigantic dream, the one that almost feels impossible, the one that you're almost afraid to admit to yourself, the one that you definitely wouldn't want to tell your friends and family about because you seems crazy, but you also want to like not not 
be laying on your deathbed someday, looking back and going, I wish I had, I, I should have, I wish I'd done this. I wish I'd done that. I wish I'd taken these risks. If you, if you can, if you've gotten to a point in your life where you realize we have one life to live, this is it. And your life's purpose is hanging out there and you haven't gone and done it yet. I created this Facebook group. It's called um, Do the Big Dream. So if you go to facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash do the big dream, you can join my Facebook group for free. Or if, if that's too much to remember, all you got to do is go to do the big dream.com. You'll, you'll see my story about my own story about what I did when I was 40. You'll see dozens of pictures of all the different celebrities that I've worked with. And there are multiple links in there that'll take you to my Facebook group. I haven't officially launched the group yet. We're building it up. So if you want to come and join us, you're going to be able to be right at the very beginning. And what I can tell you is that the Facebook group is free. And what I plan on teaching in there are my three pillar skills and then in addition to that, I have a 15-step formula that I have followed to be able to go out and accomplish these cool things in life. So when I went from where I was managing a newspaper to where I decided I wanted to have my own comedy club, which I ran for eight years, which we didn't even talk about, to where I wanted to become a stand-up comedian, to where I wanted to become an auctioneer, to where I wanted to be on television, I always went back and followed these same 15 steps and it took me there. And I'm eager to teach you because I want to be able to tell people someday that I helped you achieve your big dream. So that's how you can find me. And if and if this if we're kindred spirits and if this resonates with you, come find me and let's do this. Yes, that sounds perfect. Perfect. So thank you for sharing that. And I want to ask everybody to definitely do me a solid and go ahead in whatever platform you're listening or watching this on to make sure you subscribe, you like, and you share because we want to be able to make this get out into the public to where Sean's story is seen so much more along with all the amazing guests that I've had on here um, up till now. It has been such a pleasure um, talking with you today, Sean. Oh, and I, I look forward to um, seeing how this group expands and, and grows over time. Yes, me too. Anyway, thank you so much for having me on, Vicki. This is awesome. My pleasure. Uh, everybody, I will see you later.